Hi, I'm Daniel Ruskin. I'm Tyler Dossi. And today we're going to be hosting episode five, I believe, of the Kylie and Daniel Policy Podcast. Um, our plan today is to talk a little bit about universal basic in- income, um, a little bit of the, you know, what UBI is, a little bit of history, um, where some proposals from UBI have come from. Um, and then we're going to go into a little bit, is it plausible? Is this something that we can do as a society? Would it help us, um, you know, at a high level? Would it hurt us? Um, how would it affect the economy? What are some pros and cons? And then after that, we're going to talk a little bit about what countries have already done it. Um, and also where it's already been done in the United States as well. And then we'll talk a little bit about how coronavirus and the crisis, um, you know, the economic crisis surrounding coronavirus has brought people into a place where they're a little more receptive to UBI than they otherwise might have been. Um, And then I also want to talk a little bit about some alternatives to UBI as well. For example, the negative income tax and where that can come into play. So I guess to start, I mean, I think probably a good place to start is to just introduce what UBI is for those listeners who may not have heard of it before. Yeah, so UBI, which is um, the acronym for Universal Basic Income, is a model that provides all citizens of a country or like a geographic area with a sum of money, completely regardless of their income, like resources, employment status. And the person who really brought this up into the light was Andrew Yang. He was a 2020 um, Democratic candidate for president in the United States. And his model was going to give each citizen over the age of 18 $1,000 a month, no, no questions asked, no test fulfilled, no work requirements. And his main argument behind this was automation. And he would state that um, automation was projected to take a third of all American jobs within the next 12 years or so. And do that, he wanted to be able to put um, money directly into the hands of Americans and make sure that they're taken care of and try to break the cycle of poverty. And with his plan, you know, veterans, people who already collect um, social security, disability, they're still going to receive this UBI on top of those other benefits. It's not going to cancel them out. And he wanted to do this because it this would actually help permanently grow the economy by about 13 or so percent, which is about two and a half trillion dollars by 2025. And it was projected to increase the labor force by almost 5 million. And I know that a lot of people are against UBI for a number of reasons. You know, some of the reasons um, state more of like inflation um, concern, the concern that like people are just going to abuse this. But on his website, he actually laid out all the different reasons that people would mention. The main one being um, people saying that, oh, this is going to disincentivize people from working. People are just going to use it to buy drugs and alcohol. But when you actually looked into it, it stated that there was no increase in drug or alcohol purchases, and it was actually raising the high school graduation rates. And another one of his big reasons is that employers are not paying their workers for the work that they are doing. So worker productivity has gone up 72% within the last 40 or so years, but wages are only up by 9%. So by creating this universal basic income, it's supposed to help, you know, close that gap up a little bit. Yeah. And I think you touched on a little bit of an echo there. Sorry. Um, So yeah, I think you touched on a lot of great, uh, you know, points there. And I want to, you know, expand on them a little more. 
I think the first point that you mentioned that I found very important is the idea that people who are already collecting existing welfare, such as social security, um, you know, SNAP, food stamps, they're still going to get those benefits. And UBI is going to be an additional benefit on top of those. I think that's very important because I think some people think of UBI as something that will replace existing social welfare benefits. And maybe that's something that can happen in the distant future. But I don't think that's something that's feasible at first because UBI is inherently a, you know, one size fits all uh, plan for for the most part. You know, if everyone's going to get $1,000 a month or everyone's going to get, you know, $1,000 a month plus $250 per child or something along those lines. And I think when you have that kind of one size fits all effect, it can't fill everyone's needs. And I don't think it's possible for a plan like that to be the only um, assistance program that's out there. It's not going to like $1,000 a month is not going to help people pay their rent and, you know, pay for food and pay for childcare expenses if they can't find a job or if they're on disability. So I think the idea that UBI um, could replace existing welfare is probably not going to work in the short term. But I think as long as it's something that's structured on top of existing benefits, um, I think that that's a great idea. And I think that doesn't mean that existing benefits can't be updated as well. So for example, if we're giving someone UBI, it might mean that unemployment uh, might be restructured a little bit or might be um, lessened or something like that. Um, But I think it's definitely important to note that people will still be getting their existing benefits under most UBI plans. Another thing that you mentioned that I thought was important is the idea that UBI will disincentivize people from working um, and that, you know, they're just going to say, oh, you know, if I make $1,000 a month um, from the government, why would I work at all? But I think the data shows that for the most part, this doesn't happen. Um, For example, the Alaska Permanent Fund, you know, a study uh, done in 2018, February 2018, by two economists at UChicago and UPenn showed that the Alaska Permanent Fund dividends, so which is essentially UBI today in Alaska, did not disincentivize employment, and it actually increased part-time employment by 1.8%. So I think the the data shows the EBI is not going to disincentivize disincentivize employment, and I think that also kind of holds up to common sense. I mean, $1,000 a month isn't going to cut. People still are going to need to work um, in order to sustain the lifestyle that they want or need. Um, And I think UBI inherently also provides a very basic level of income. If you want to have luxuries in your life, UBI is probably not going to cover it, and you're still going to need to work to cover those. And also, I think people, most people don't want to not work. I think a lot of people find a lot of personal purpose from their work, and they find a sense of meaning from their work. Um, And I know for me, if I didn't work at all, I would be unbelievably bored. And I don't, I don't know if I could, uh, if I could live with myself. So I think people are still going to, you know, at a, on a large scale, want to increase their productivity and contribute to society, even if they are getting UBI. I think, you know, it, it's unrealistic to suggest that this is going to, um, you know, substantially decrease the labor market. And I think that maybe that's more of a philosophical argument surrounding, you know, meaning and purpose and, you know, people find purpose in their work. But I think regardless, the data shows that UBI is not going to, you know, eliminate labor. Yeah. A desire for labor. Yeah. And actually, um, I just want to touch on automation again. You know, automation is a serious issue when you do look at it. If you look at the stats of it, 
insurance underwriters, 99% of their jobs are at risk of being taken over by automation, 97% of farm laborers, 97% of fast food cooks, 88% of construction laborers, like 79% of truck drivers, and 68% of mail carriers are at risk of losing jobs because of this, because of automation. So UBI is supposed to meet that and People had asked um, Andrew Yang before how other um, candidates such as um, Bernie Sanders was discussing job retraining for um, jobs that are going to be eliminated by his policies. And Andrew Yang actually fought back against that, saying that, you know, the studies don't prove that that's actually going to work. And actually, 37% of people who go into job retrainings will actually pass through it and find new jobs through that. So that's why he wanted to do. UBI instead of doing um, job retraining. And also going back to the Alaska thing, they actually found that with the Alaska, um, with the incentives that they give for them, actually almost three quarters of them save that money instead of spending it. So this kind of goes into, you know, is it plausible that we can actually do UBI? Like, what are the pros and cons? Like, this isn't a new idea. Martin Luther King actually said that guaranteed income would abolish poverty and that it would also help um, reduce income inequality. Milton Friedman, a very famous economist, actually proposed a negative income tax so that the poor would receive a tax credit if their income fell below a minimum level. And it would be equivalent to a tax payment for families earning above the minimum level. So President Lyndon Johnson's administration actually launched a test of this um, idea by Milton Friedman in New Jersey. The issue was that it actually didn't work out super well for them. So it showed that actually people, you know, did have a reduced incentive um, to work. It broke up families because a lot, like, unfortunately, a lot of the times with impoverished families, the parents will stay together for um, tax reasons, for financial reasons. And because now they're getting this new incentive, a lot of families are being broken up because of it. And the administrative costs were just way too high for these programs. So they end up um, doing away with it. But Alaska picked up on the guaranteed income program in 1982, about 20 years later. So this gives each um, resident $1,200 a year out of the oil revenues that they have over in Alaska. And like I said before, almost three-fourths of them actually end up saving it for emergencies. So you kind of could look at it from both ends, be like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And it just has to do with, I guess, the program and how you set it up. So Lyndon Johnson's administration did not create a very sustainable program. It didn't actually help out too much. But Alaska's program is honestly working wonderfully for them. So... It really just, like I said, just kind of goes into how you create the program and what is done with it to make it more effective. I absolutely agree. I think this is kind of a, a recurring topic on our show that incentives matter. I think if you structure a program that does reduce the incentive to work, it might reduce employment. But as long as you structure a program that people can depend on long term, for example, the Alaska program, but that still ensures that people have a financial and personal incentive to work, I think they're still going to work. And I think people are still going to add productivity to society. I also think that your point about automation is very important because 
over the next, you know, decade and to, you know, next 20 years, automation is going to reduce a lot of jobs. And it's not only low paying jobs, it's also, you know, what would be considered professional jobs like insurance underwriters, um, any job or, you know, financial workers or, um, you know, things like that. I think any job where someone's work is mostly, you know, executing defined business processes in general will be at very high risk for automation. So I think, and that also includes things like, you know, fast food workers and retail workers, and, you know, as people move more to conglomerates like Amazon and, and other, you know, Walmart. So I think having structures in place and having programs in place that, you know, work before those jobs start to disappear, I think will be incredibly important. Because if we wait until the unemployment rate is 25%, uh, because, you know, all, you know, a bunch of retail workers are being fired because their jobs are being replaced by automation, I think it's almost going to be too late at that point. Or it, it won't be too late to add a program, but we're going to miss a lot of the economic benefits from that program. And we're going to put people in a very precarious financial situation before we actually start to fix it. So I think getting ahead of the curveball there and making sure that our economy is set up in a way that can sustain automation is important because it is going to happen. Automation is going to happen no matter what we do. So we need to make sure we're prepared for it. And I think a couple of the things that you mentioned too are about, you know, the programs that have already been done are also interesting. You know, President Johnson administration um, tested the negative income tax, like you mentioned, the Alaska Permanent Fund. Um, even President Nixon in, in the uh, late 1960s proposed a negative income tax, and he wanted to test it. So, I mean, this idea has been around for a long time, and it's been tested in a lot of ways. I think one of the problems with some of these tests, and maybe this contributes to some of the negative effects that you mentioned, is that people might, if a test is defined to only last for a small period of time, for example, my understanding is that New Jersey test was not a permanent program. It was it was a relatively short-term program. I don't think that's going to have comparable effects on people's lives than a long-term program that people know is going to exist for the next 10, 20, 30 years. If I know that I'm going to get $1,000 a month for the next 30 years, that gives me the freedom to take more risks. And maybe instead of um, you know going into a job that's um, safe, I can maybe work on, you know, starting a company, or maybe I can work on pursuing more education, uh, because I can afford to take that risk, because I have that UBI, and I have that safety net. I think if a program is short term, if it's only for one, two or three years, or something like that, people can't depend on it. And they can't make long term life decisions based on that income, because it might not be there later on. So I think, I think looking at something like the Alaska Permanent Fund, where people can depend on it for long term, would be I think, in, in my opinion, would be a better reflection of what a large-scale UBI would look like, you know, than more short-term tests. But even that's not perfect. Because, like you mentioned, um, almost three-fourths of recipients save that money for emergencies, which I think is good. I think it's good that people save their money. But I think also one of the points of UBI is to spur economic growth. And if three-fourths of recipients are saving the money, that means they're not spending it. Um, unless it also increases their spending in other places, which I, I'm not sure if it does, um, but that's possible. But I think ideally, you know, if we if we structure UBI in such a way that people are using it for their daily expenses, I think that would be better for the economy than if people are mostly saving it. But I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. I think that's maybe a controversial point. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with um, the whole like saving versus spending. Um, you know, issue there. 
just because I know that um, personally, like currently I, I lost my uh, job and I couldn't qualify for the university um, for my wages. For some reason, Connecticut has a weird statute about that. But I was able to qualify because I have a, a job back home over winter and summer breaks. So I'm currently collecting unemployment. And if you live in the United States up until the end of July, as long as you're filing for unemployment, you have an extra 600 every single week. I so far have received one payment of that. I'm waiting for the other four that um, I still have not received yet from the state. And I'm currently saving um, quite a bit of that right now, but I am also saving because I'm finishing paying off a car right now. So there are different, um, like there are different things that people will do with the money. I know that a lot of my coworkers said that they're just pocketing away because they're afraid of um, paying back the tax on it. Um, if you didn't choose to withhold the taxes on it, which I didn't, so I have to put aside money for that right now. Um, but also. I remember we had talked in a previous episode about it. If I, if I, you know, had a higher wage, if I had more disposable income, I would be giving more to local economies because one of the biggest gripes about shopping in local markets is that it's so much more expensive, which um, if anyone actually wants to look into, look into the whole um, reason why Trader Joe's is so popular. Mm -hmm. And the main reason is because people want the feeling of, shopping in authentic, you know, your local market, but also with the incredibly low prices of a supermarket chain. It's actually really interesting to look at because that's one of the reasons why I like Trader Joe's a lot. I don't have one particularly close to me, but whenever I get to go there, it does feel like an authentic market. And I've always really loved going to those. I love going to my local orchards because we live in New England and we have those everywhere. Like we have farm stands all around. And I love to visit them whenever I can, but I, you know, I can't go and buy all my groceries there every single week because I can't afford that. I can, I really can only afford to shop at um, Big Y or Walmart, like the cheaper um, supermarket chains. So there is two different sides to, you know, do you want to, do most people, would most people save this money or would a lot of people choose to invest this money like how you were saying that you would you could maybe like start a company you could um stay in school longer and pay that off a lot easier like there are so many different ways that people would spend this universal basic income some people would save it like how most people in alaska do but i know people like me like yeah you'll save some of it but you actually really want to get back to the economy and you know feed into the local markets and make sure that they like your local main street stays afloat because that's currently and a lot of danger right now is we just kind of stagnate, but the cost of living keeps on going up and up. People can't afford to give back into their local economies anymore. So UBI also helps solve that issue. But I know that a lot of the um, issue that people also have with UBI is that they're really scared of inflation. They're um, they're scared about you know the money's actually not going to mean a lot anymore. Their cost of living is going to go up because of this. And I feel like those are really good things to also bring up. I know that um, AOC has currently kind of turned around on her stance of UBI and people called her out for it. And she said that like it was because her biggest fear was about, you know, people taking advantage of this and raising their costs of rent Um, because like so many people in America rent. There's currently a huge issue right now with the rent strike because people can't afford to be paying their rents right now when most like 
almost a quarter of all Americans are unemployed or know someone who is unemployed right now. So I feel like that is another discussion that needs to be brought into UBI is not only how people are spending this, but how companies and corporations and individuals are going to take advantage of others because of this, because now they know that they have this disposable income. That is a really good point. It's not something, I mean, inflation is something I've given the thought to, but I never thought about people taking advantage. Like, oh, you know, I know my tenant now has an extra thousand dollars a month, so I'm going to raise their rent by 800. And I think if people end up doing that, I think that could have catastrophic effects and it could make it essentially pointless because the whole idea of UBI, in my opinion, is to redistribute wealth. We want to make sure that people can afford to live a sustainable, um, reasonable lifestyle. Um, and I think if, and we don't necessarily want to be subsidizing the lifestyle of people who already own rental properties or if, you know, corporations who are renting out rental properties. I think if people, you know, end up taking advantage of UBI, I think that could pose a substantial problem. And I think it's something that definitely, you know, is, is worth thinking about more. But, I, I, you know, I did also want to talk about inflation a little bit is, and, you know, the idea that, you know, people might take advantage of people's additional disposable income and how we might tackle that. So in my mind, there are two ways to tackle the inflation problem. I think the first is to structure the universal basic income such that it doesn't actually put additional wealth into the economy. So if we fund UBI with debt, um, you know, especially if it's bought up by the Federal Reserve by printing money, I think that is going to add more money to the economy. And, you know, by definition, printing money is going to cause inflation, right? You know, if there are, if the Federal Reserve prints money, it's not increasing the wealth in our country. It's just you know, adding more zeros to the money supply. And it might have short-term effects with, you know, people being able to, you know, in the short term, feel more financially secure. But I think in the long term, I don't know how much of a you know substantial effect it's going to have. So for example, you know, the Roosevelt um, Institute um, showed that, let me find the research that I was looking at. So in, in a paper they published called Modeling the Economic Macroeconomic Effects of the UBI, they found that if, a UBI is funded by debt, it does grow the economy for about eight years, but then the stimulative effects of that program dissipate. And, you know, GDP growth goes back to normal. The economy doesn't grow anymore um, than it would have without UBI. But on the other hand, if you instead fund UBI with a progressive income tax, um, you know, when the model is essentially designed to achieve redistribution of wealth from, you know, the 1% to the 99%, um, that economic growth um, stays even after those eight years. Um, so I think even even when it's funded by redistrib- redistributing money from you know the one percent to the rest of the economy, it's still going to have a positive effect on our economy, and it's still going to grow the economy even though we're not creating additional wealth, and even though at that point we're not contributing to inflation directly because we're not printing more money. The amount of money that's in the economy stays the same. It's just who is holding it. Um, that, that changes, which I think is very important because, you know, an, a dollar to someone who already has a billion dollars is worth a lot less to a dollar who's scraping by to pay the rent at the end of the month. So I think, you know, the fact that, you know, we could model universal basic income based on a redistributional approach could work better than, you know, funding it with, um, by increasing the deficit. Um, so I think that's something that's important. I think one way that a UBI could structure be could be structured to achieve that is with a negative income tax. So that's kind of what I think you mentioned Johnson was, you know, tried in New Jersey. It's what, you know, Nixon was proposing back in the 1960s. 
And the way this works is that if someone reports on their income tax return that they have made less than a certain amount, they will then receive a tax credit um, to make up for that. And, you know, that that tax credit will be sliding scale. So maybe, you know, if you make less than the poverty line, you get a full tax credit. Um, and then you know, maybe it scales down as you get to like two times, three times, four times the poverty line. So I think something like that could work well. And in fact, we already do it a little bit today. I mean, we have the income tax or the earned income tax credit, which is for people who work, um, but who don't make a lot of money. And they get, you know, an additional subsidy from the government that could, in fact, make them owe negative income tax. But I think scaling that up so that it's more in line with, you know, what some, someone like Andrew Yang is proposing, like an extra $1,000 a month, would be a lot more substantial to people who are, you know, below the poverty line, for example. And I think also, if we were going to have a negative income tax, I think it would also be worth, you know, exploring distributing that, you know, negative income tax throughout the year. So like right now on your paycheck, you have tax withholdings, instead of a tax withholding, you would have a tax distribution. So like maybe your paycheck would increase by $1,000 a month, instead of having taxes withheld if you were subject to a negative income tax. Um, and that would make sure that, you know, people aren't just getting 12 grand at the end of the year, they actually are getting money throughout the year that's going to contribute to their cash flow and make sure that they have the money they need to live their lives and, you know, sustain their, um, I guess, pay their expenses and, and live a life. I mean, you pay for their childcare expenses and whatnot. So I think that's something that's worth exploring and which maybe could, you know, first it could um, ensure that inflation, even if it happens, is lessened. And also it could help prevent against that abuse that you mentioned. Because if, if UBI is structured based on someone's tax return, that tax return is not public. No one knows necessarily that, you know, how much money a given person is getting unless they know their exact income. So that could also discourage, you know, landlord from increasing rent by $1,000 across the board because they have no idea which one of their tenants actually got that money. Um, and you could, you could also maybe have some kind of anti-discrimination statutes. You know, you can't increase rent based on the fact that someone's getting UBI and whatnot, which, which could also play an effect too. Yeah. And I actually want to discuss something about um, like one of the pros to UBI that um, people don't realize is actually severely affecting the economies, especially over in um, Europe, is that the young adults there are either not having children or they're waiting longer to have children. So the tax base is completely depleting over there. And there is a big worry about what's going to go on with that and how are they going to help mitigate that. So. People have contributed to why a lot of European countries are actually very accepting of immigrants. I know that um, my friend Anya is from Sweden, and she said that after World War II, Swedish people actually went over to um, try incentivize immigrants to come into their country because they had so many jobs and they need people to fill them. So they went around, they helped set them up. And there's actually um, a really interesting book called Viking Economics that I recently read for my political sociology class. And it touches a little bit on that, about how Norway will help set you up with a job, help train you, like take care of you, because they want you to become a contributing member of their society and of their economy. So I feel like UBI will also really help out with these couples who are putting off children, a lot of the times for financial reasons. They know that they can't bring a child into this world and take care of them to the fullest extent. They know that they have student loan debt. They know that their rent takes up maybe 50% or more of their income. They have so many bills that they really don't have extra money to spare to take care of a child. So 
by helping give them this extra money every single month, it's actually going to really help them out and possibly create a larger tax base so that these economies can sustain themselves because a lot of um, European countries are also social democracies that rely on a high taxation rate to take care of everyone. So if their tax base keeps on depleting, the social democracy could possibly collapse in the future because the tax base isn't quite there anymore. They could see an even higher increase in taxes. They could see some of their programs being stripped away and losing funding. So I feel like that's another really big issue that not too many people discuss when it comes to UBI and the reason why um, tax bases are starting to deplete over in Europe. It's because these people aren't having children because of financial reasons a lot of the time. And I know that some countries have already started doing this with students. Like I said before, my friend Anya told me about this thing called study benefits over in Sweden where students can receive like roughly $900 a month to study full time at what she said was a legitimate university. She said that they are, you know, expected to pay back before the age of 50, but the interest rate stays low. They have to be making certain grades to stay on the program. Unless like there's a valid excuse, say like they got sick and they went to the hospital, then they don't have to pay it back immediately. But that actually, um, that's another thing with it is that if you drop out or something, you immediately have to start paying it back. Like no, no real like grace period or anything from what I was getting from her. And they only receive it while they're taking classes. Like if you take summer classes, you're still going to get in June, July, and August. But most of the time you only get it through September through May. Um, Denmark does sort of a similar program. Um, so they do the um, the same thing of about $900 a month. But the thing is, they don't need to pay the state back even if they do drop out. And this is up to six years of study. So they can say for, let's see, six years is roughly, if you stay like completely throughout school and you really like conquer it down, that's about like a bachelor's and a master's degree. So they're taken care of through that. And... That honestly could really help out so many students, especially over in America. I know that, you know, college hung like college students going hungry is a really big issue that has really been coming up into the limelight. I know that a lot of universities started up, you know, food pantries, food drives to help take care of their students. But another thing that could help them out is these benefits. You know, a lot of the times university um, and college towns will take advantage of renters and will start charging very high rents above, way above their mortgage price. I mean, it already happens already with so many landlords, but they will especially prey on young adults and college students who don't really know any better. And they'll charge them these insane prices and housing already costs so much. So they feel like by going into these places, it'll be a lot better. It'll be even just slightly less, but they're still taken advantage of by these people. They will oftentimes go broke. That's where the whole like college kids are so broke kind of thing comes from. It's because they pay so much in bills and they're not getting any assistance from it. Like we don't really qual. A lot of us won't qualify for SNAP benefits or anything like that. So perhaps even like a student's um, stipend or something like that, you know, these study benefits, it could really help out a lot of students, um, even besides like universal basic income, like this is a form of it. Absolutely. I think what the, the goal of any kind of 
you know, public policy surrounding UBI should be to in- increase the welfare and security of its citizens. And I think education is one of the great equalizers. People who pursue education can find their way to better jobs and better personal and professional opportunities. And I think having a student-focused UBI policy, such as that, you know, six-year stipend of $900 a month, I think it make a big difference because it would encourage people to pursue education and better themselves, whereas otherwise they might not be able to afford to do it. Um, you know, if they can't afford housing or, you know, I guess in Denmark, it might not be as much of an issue, but um, like in the United States, you know, sky high tuition that's increasing every year. I think having government policies that encourage instead of discourage education um, could make a huge difference. I think, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about with the UBI kind of shows the multifaceted benefits of such, of a policy like this. It increases people's desire to have children. It increases people's desire to pursue education, uh, pursue training. Um, and it encourages people to either save money and improve their long-term financial security or improve their standard of, standard of living by spending their money. I think this kind of direct cash assistance to people has such you know widespread economic effects, both on a macro level and on a personal, you know, individual level. It'll make people better themselves and it'll make people feel more financially secure. And I think for that reason, that you know, the sheer magnitude of effect, I think that's why. Um, UBI are often seen as superior to, you know, non certain non-cash assistance. I mean, obviously, we still need, you know, things like SNAP and, and you know, um, certain other, you know, more um, specific aid-focused, um, you know, social assistance, like get, helping people get food or helping people get housing. But I think having a cash program on top of that has the potential to just, you know, multiply the effects that people feel from this because, you know, if someone has cash, they can spend it exactly where they need it. They can spend it on rent if they need it for rent. They can spend it on food if they need it for food. Whereas if they are getting, you know, indirect assistance or non-cash assistance, by definition, it's not always going to meet someone's individual need. It's very inflexible assistance that, you know, might not help where the person needs help the most. So I think this kind of, you know, focus on cash assistance and UBI does have the potential to you know, spur all these effects surrounding, you know, children and increasing the tax base for the future um, and, and all these important, um, you know, aspects of public welfare that we might not consider at first. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people are now starting to take UBI much more seriously because of the current crisis that we're in. You know, there are so many different countries all around the world who are trying their best to help out their citizens throughout this time. I know that some countries are giving their citizens up to $2,000 every single month, whereas um, Americans currently only receive that one-time $1,200 check. And people who have filed for unemployment um, get the extra $600 a week through the end of July. But there has been talks about you know, more stimulus checks in the future. There's a lot of controversy around it. Um, within Congress about whether or not we should um, continue with the stimulus checks, especially since some states are already starting to reopen. I know that um, the state of Connecticut is projecting to do a soft reopening within the next few weeks, um, you know, just still applying to, um, you know, social distancing and everything, but just opening up like retail and like salons and just like small things so far. And I feel like it does bring up a really good discussion about, you know, we now see that UBI could be so incredibly useful. If people were already getting that extra $1,000 a month, they could have already been saving this up. They could have been more prepared 
for this crisis to occur. So, like, I'm glad that it's coming up more and more. I think Andrew Yang really do did a great job uh, making this a better discussion. Like we said, like, this has been a discussion since about the 60s of whether or not the United States should participate in some form of universal basic income. And this whole pandemic is really starting to bring that conversation more light and realize that it's actually something that it's not really a question of do we want it? It's more of a question that like we need it at this point. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, reactionary policies are always going to be, in my opinion, more expensive and less effective than, you know, long-term really planned out and fleshed out well-researched policies. And I think, you know, the fact that we kind of had to react to the pandemic with like really, you know, fast paced legislation where we had to like, get money out now um, made that response very delayed and somewhat ineffective because by the time people got their $1,200, they've already been suffering financially for weeks, potentially or months. So I think if we had, like you mentioned, this UBI in place already, and we have this policy working, um, it could have put people in a position where they were already financially prepared for this. They had money saved up um, where they could sustain their lives, um, you know, throughout the pandemic. And even if they didn't, um, they would could count on that $1,000 a month going forward to help them at least pay rent or at least get some of those expenses out of the way. I think also having UPI already in place kind of opens the door to, you know, if we need to increase that UBI in the wake of the pandemic, instead of having to design a whole system whereby, you know, the IRS is sending out stimulus checks with Trump's name on it, uh, instead of having to, to design all of that in the last minute, we can instead just pass a simple bill. Okay, you know, for the next three months, this thousand dollars is actually going to be two thousand. Um, and I think with a simple change like that, you can right away, you know, I, I guess with with very little change, except for like a dollar amount, you can substantially improve people's financial situations um, by increasing and de- or potentially decreasing um, UBI based on the current economic environment. So it kind of creates an infrastructure where we can easily react to what's going on around us without having to have this hectic last minute, you know, debate with the checks going out way too late um, when people have already felt the brunt of the of the crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are still so many people who are suffering, even though like I um, I just got like my retro pay for my unemployment, but so many of my coworkers at my job were suffering for a while because they were waiting on their unemployment to come through. Some jobs forced their employees to use up all their paid sick time, all their vacation time, and you're not allowed to get your unemployment as long as you're still getting that. So a lot of them were, you know, waiting on that check to come in. They're waiting for their unemployment. They're still waiting on retro pay and it's it's such a scary time and like you said like this shouldn't be a situation of trying to get out as fast as we can like this should have still been set up this people should have been taken care of a while ago some people are still waiting on their checks right now I know that um I always see so many tweets of people just um sending out saying has anyone received um their stimulus check and so many people are responding saying no I'm still waiting on it and it's it's just, it's not a good time right now for a lot of Americans and UBI could have fixed all of this. And again, I'm grateful Andrew Yang for bringing this up as an idea. I think that his heart really was in the right place. I, again, I was initially against it because I was afraid about 
you know, cost all going up for people and people who are already so disadvantaged being taken advantage of even more by, like I was saying before, like landlords and people jacking up their prices because they know that now people have more money, even though this was supposed to act as a way of reducing income inequality and trying to close the gap between worker productivity and um, wages and just trying to close it up a little bit more because productivity has gone up so much within the last 40, 50 years, but wages have barely gone up. So this was supposed to kind of mitigate that, make it better. So I I was initially against it because I was afraid about so many different issues, but now everyone's kind of realizing that this is something that we need now. You know, people need to be taken care of and the federal government isn't doing a great job of doing that with just their stimulus bills. So why not have UBI in place to make sure that people are always going to be taken care of? Absolutely. I, I agree. And I think there are definitely problems with the policy surrounding UBI, um, you know, and there are concerns, valid concerns about inflation and about price discrimination and whatnot. But I think those are just reasons to take a deeper look at how we can design a policy that, you know, either circumvents or lessens those problems. I, I think it's definitely not a reason to, reject it entirely. So I think you have a lot of good points there. So I think this is probably a good place to start wrapping up. I mean, I think we talked a lot about um, a lot about UBI today, and we got to touch a lot of good points surrounding, you know, how it interacts with other welfare, um, you know, how it will affect people incentive to work, whether they're going to save or spend the money, um, you know, historical um, implementations of UBI, like the Alaska Permanent Fund, um, you know, Nixon's ideas, Johnson's ideas. We've got a lot of good topics today. I don't know if you have any last words about uh, UBI for Yaka? Um, I would say everyone, I, I always say this, I feel like at the end of every single episode, but I just encourage everyone to do the research into it and come to your own conclusions. Like, you know, we have different, um, we even have different opinions like between each other um, about this, even though we are very much on the same page. Like everyone has different ideas on how they think UBI should work. If they think it'll work, should we even have UBI? So I just encourage everyone to do your own research and Come to conclusions on your own, you know, don't always um, listen to what people um, try to tell you about it, because that's why I was so against UBI at first, because so many people who I really look up to were bringing up all these cons about UBI. So it made me very apprehensive to at first. But now, of course, as I'm seeing this whole crisis happen, but also once I actually really started to look into and I saw the way that he was discussing it, I started to realize that he actually really did have a good point. And that it was something that we could implement to some degree. So everyone just do your own research about it. See what you think about it. You know, no one's opinion is technically a wrong opinion. People just disagree with you. So yeah, just, you know, come to your own conclusion and find out what you think. 